Well, I'm more than slightly excited to dig into Ephesians this, uh, this evening. I realize that uh, in our short existence as a church, this is the first epistle that we have uh, explored together. And I'm also doubly excited that it's Ephesians because Ephesians is, is God's grand vision for what the church can be is under the surface. And uh, as we move into 2012, uh, as, as a church plant coming into our own, going to be uh, electing our first leaders in the coming months, I'm excited to be built on this foundation in Ephesians. Now, before we get started, I want to do a little free association. So, things that come into your mind when I say the word church, go. People. Bad, bad coffee. Not here, mister. <laughs> Family. Okay. Okay. I've asked around a little bit this week, and uh, here's, a, here's a list. Um, now, a lot of these folks are not church lovers like you, but uh, hypocritical, hypercritical, singing, eating, rules, religion. Ineffective, divided, communion, people, cathedral. For the past several days, there's been a short video going over and over again on Facebook. You've seen this, right, by Jeff Bethke, who attempts to give voice uh, about his frustration that uh, it seems like sometimes uh, religion has taken the place of relationship with Jesus. And he kind of uses this spoken word format, or at least takes a stab at it. Uh, it's very interesting for me to kind of sit back and watch people's responses to this video on, on Facebook. Now, some people I know are head over heels, like, this is the best thing I've ever heard. This says everything I've always felt. And then other people seem to take Jeff Bethke to task about his bad theology and worse poetry and individualistic thought. Uh, to his credit now, Bethke never intended for that video to go viral like it has and, and have all these tens of thousands of hits. In fact, when Kevin DeYoung wrote a loving yet pointed letter of critique to Bethke about his low view of church in that video, this is what Bethke wrote. I just wanted to say, I really appreciate your article, man. It hit me hard. I'll even be honest and say that I agree with you 100%. God has been working with me in the last six months on loving Jesus and loving his church. For the first few years of walking with Jesus, which started for me in 2008, I had a warped view of the church. I didn't build up the church. I didn't try and unify the church or glorify Christ's bride. If I had to redo the video tomorrow, I'd keep the overall message, but I would articulate, elaborate, and expand on the parts where my words and delivery were chosen poorly. My prayer is that, is that my generation would re represent Christ faithfully and not swing on either end of the spectrum. Good on you. My point now is not to critique Bethke or his video. My point is that oftentimes, even amongst Christians, the church is viewed with disdain and suspicion, or at least a view of irrelevancy. People look around and see. I mean, it's obvious. There are, I think, over 38,000 official Christian denominations in the world. I think that stat's about 10 years old, actually. So who knows how many more there are now. And people are looking at that and saying, these people can't even get along with each other. What is wrong with the church? I mean, when's the last time you saw people standing in line or fighting uh, to get a better seat? I mean, why are these two rows empty, by the way? I don't have bad breath. <laughs> I think sometimes our problem is one of expectation. 
Sometimes I, I think we have this view that, hey, if we're all saved by Jesus, we're going to have this utopian society, right? And, and everyone's just going to get along, and we're going to wear white togas in here and smile and have stars in our eyes. You know what that is, right? That's called a cult. And those usually end with the leader walking off with the money or committing suicide or running off with all the women in the church. And none of those things are happening here. Okay, I just want to be clear on that. In, in, the, in his book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about our ideals of the church becoming our enemy, the enemy of the church. And the reason is, sometimes we, th- we think that this group of people ought to be better than we are, and when they let us down, which we do let each other down, it, it, it shatters our view and our confidence in the church. Others would say, hey, you know what? Yeah, you're right. The church is messed up. That's why we've got to get back to that Old Testament church, like the book of Acts, right? Eugene Peterson quips, Sometimes we hear our friends talk in moony, romantic terms of the early church. They say, we need to get back to being just like the early church. Peterson writes, heaven help us. These churches were a mess, and Paul wrote his letters to them to help them clean up that very mess. It's true. Take a good look at Paul's letter to the Corinthians and Galatians and Philippians and Colossians. All those letters are written in response to either serious questions or immorality, big problems in the church. Those letters are called ad hoc or occasional. They're reactionary. People are screwing up, and so Paul tries to help out those churches by writing those letters. There's no romantic view of the church in the Bible. But there is one letter that Paul wrote that's not reactionary. A letter that he wrote not at an occasion of of people asking him doctrinal questions. A letter that he wrote not out of responding to somebody sleeping with their dad's wife like happened uh, in the Corinthians. That letter is called the Ephesians. And it's the letter that you and I are going to be living in together from now into the better part of June. That's going to be awesome. Now, here are some things that people have, ta- have said about Ephesians over the years. John Stott, one of my favorite expositors, says, The letter to the Ephesians is a marvelously concise, yet comprehensive, summary of the Christian good news and its implications. Nobody can read it without being moved to wonder and worship and challenge in consistency of life. I like that. Armitage Robinson called it the crown of St. Paul's writings. Samuel Taylor Coolidge called it the divinest composition of man. I didn't know divinest was a word until that. William Barclay said, Ephesians is the queen of the epistles. And James Boyce writes, Ephesians is a mini-course in theology centered on the church. And then he goes on, but what a course, what theology. And it was Calvin's favorite letter. Now, Anyone who has kids knows about those days that no matter what you do, it seems like your energy is spent correcting your kids. You might have grandiose plans of a picnic in the park, but you're constantly putting so-and-so in timeout, explaining to Joey why he can't put Sally's doll in the toilet for the tenth time in a row. And by, by the time you look at the clock, it's already bedtime, and all your energy is spent fixing problems and putting out fires. But what if you had a day where you actually had time and energy to do something fun. What would you do? I was thinking about that. I was thinking, hmm, maybe a nice picnic at Boulevard Park on an August afternoon. We bike ride there. No fighting. 
We get there, we have our picnic at the park, just about twilight. Nobody trying to kill the seagull with a rock. <laughs> Nobody running into the water. Okay, and then we would ride the mallard ice cream. And everybody's ice cream scoop would be just the right size and they wouldn't want the other person's flavor. And then we would go home and they would want to take a bath and they would all agree on the same bedtime story. Wouldn't that be great? That's how I might write a summer day with my family. It's almost as if with Ephesians, Paul has a moment of peace, of solace. By the way, I think he probably wrote this in prison in Rome. So he had time. I know he had time. But, but, but he actually had maybe some calm waters for a minute. And instead of having to respond to a crisis, he gets the opportunity to write the letter he actually wants to write. To write a letter about God's grand vision for what the church really can be and what it really is. And what we're going to find in this letter will actually, I think, take a lifetime to unpack. And it's at least going to take through June to preach. But as we explore this vision, our identity as individuals and as the church is going to be shaped and formed. That is my prayer for us as a church, to be formed into this vision together, this vision of the church. Eugene Peterson writes this, Ephesians is a revelation of the church that we never see. It shows us the healthy soil and root system of all the operations of the Trinity out of which the church we do see grows. So we see kind of the ugly stuff, right? The jealousy, the fighting, the 38,000 denominations. She said that about me. He said that about him, right? We see all that junk. We saw the sin, but Ephesians is what God is actually doing under the surface. The stuff that we don't get to see. And what we're going to see in Ephesians is the mind-blowing reality that God chose us, the church, to be a reflection of his new creation. I know, right? Us. Can you believe that? He chose us to do that, the church. Before we dive into this grand vision, let's say a few words about Ephesians. Now, recognize that in a congregation like this, we have people from all kinds of different backgrounds and levels of education. We have some people in this room that have, that have been to seminary and other people that don't even care about uh, stuff like that. But um, so that you are aware, there are some legitimate questions about the book of Ephesians, namely who it was actually written to, and who actually wrote it. And the only reason I'm covering this is because I really want you to be informed. I want you to make good decisions for yourself. And I don't want you to be surprised one day when you're on the street and some person gets in a, a conversation with you and you're surprised, well, my pastor never told me any of those things. Or you go to a college class and the professor is trying to tell you, oh, no, Ephesians isn't, isn't a legitimate book of the Bible. So, here we go. First, there's an issue of destination. We have many copies uh, in ancient Greek of the book of Ephesians. But the three earliest copies that we have, the best manuscripts we have, actually don't have the words to the Ephesians in it. So it goes like this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints and faithful in Christ Jesus. There's no mention of the place Ephesians in those earliest manuscripts. Now, there are many theories about why that might be. 
uh, why Ephesus isn't in that opening line. One of the main theories that is that Ephesians was designed to be a chain letter to the churches in what uh, we call modern-day Turkey that was at that time called Asia. And Ian's going to put a photo up of the map of, uh, of Roman Asia. And there you can see uh, this map. This is, again, modern-day Turkey. If you go back even further than the New Testament, you would have uh, Troy would be on this coastline. So if you think uh, uh, Iliad. Uh, But here you have Ephesus. You see it's a port community back in the day. And uh, there are seven main churches. They're listed in the book of Revelation. Uh, Laodicea, Philadelphia, Sardis, Pergamum, Theatria, Smyrna, and Ephesus. And Ephesus... uh, was one of the main cities of those seven. It was, um, recent scholarship says that Ephesus was about a mid-sized city, about 50 to 80,000 residents. Today, if you were to go to Ephesus, like Tommy and Morgan have, and Ian McFarland, uh, it's about five miles inland because uh, the river has silted up so much. But back in the day, uh, they had elaborate mechanical, uh, basically their own corps of engineers, and they would dredge out that port, and it was a major shipping port. It was a multicultural community. You had uh, traders coming in and out of there, many cultures mixing, uh, and and lots of religious movement, lots of uh, ideas being traded at this place. It was most known, though, as the center of worship for the Greek goddess Artemis. Uh, That's the Greek goddess. She's also known as Diana in the Roman pantheon. And here's the next photo is a representation of her temple. Ian McFarland snapped this photo in a museum in Ephesus. This was once one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's made up of 128 pillars over 60 feet high. It's over almost uh, four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. So if you've seen that one, this is almost four times as big. And maybe most importantly, uh, something you may not consider is that this temple was the main bank in the ancient East. Uh, The reason for that is because nobody would dare... um, Desecrate the temple of Artemis so kings and rich people would put their money in underground uh, chambers underneath this temple. Uh, It functioned as a bank. Of course, that didn't stop Julius Caesar from sacking it uh, somewhere between 49 and 46 BC and taking all that money out. Let's take a look at Artemis. Here's a photo I snapped in the Louvre, and um, not in the Louvre, in the Louvre. And Artemis was uh, the goddess of the hunt. So there she is with her arrows and her fresh kill, or looks kind of alive. Uh, Maybe she's not done yet. And then the next photo uh, is Artemis. I think this one's from the Vatican Museum, and you can see her many mammaries, let's put it that way. And uh, she's also the goddess of of fertility and, uh, and things like that. She's the guardian of Ephesus and that whole area. And just a few other photos there. Um, The next one, this is uh, from Tommy and Morgan's adventure just last year. And this is maybe the ancient walkway going in. And you can see just by these ruins how built up it would have been on either side. It would have been quite a spectacle to come in as as a newbie and see just all this trading and multiculturalism going on. Next, I think that's just a glorious photo. I have no idea what that is. Do you know, Tommy? This is a library. Thank you. Yeah. And look at the skyline. And next we have uh, had also one of the largest arenas of the day. It could hold 25,000 people. And just like you might see in the movies, there was uh, you know, gladiator games and wild animals. And it wasn't a very great place if you were a slave class and had to fight to the death in there. But thank you, Ian and Tommy Morgan, for uh, 
for supporting those photos for us. So, Ephesus became the capital of Asia. And it's reasonable to think that with all that influence, if there was a chain letter going around to all those cities, that eventually the main church, maybe situated in Ephesus, might have just started putting Ephesus in the name of the letter from here on out. That's just a theory. We really don't know why those earlier manuscripts don't have the name in it. But many and most of the manuscripts we do have have Ephesus in the title. So it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. And so the one in our Bible has that, and so we're going to move forward as if uh, it's the Ephesians. The second issue that people often bring up is authorship. Some scholars dispute that Paul actually wrote this letter. And there's two main reasons. Well, there's kind of three or four, but I'm going to go over two. the, the main one is history. In the book of Acts, we learn that Paul actually spent three years with the Ephesians. He uh, stopped there once on his first missionary journey and uh, met with 12 elders and, and they got the Holy Spirit. And then later on in his third journey, he spent o- over two years, nearing three years there with the Ephesians. And when Paul writes to other places like the Philippians or the Romans, he, he goes into a lot of personal detail. He, he names people by name. Hey, greet Priscilla. Greet, the, the, greet these people in the name of Christ. And he says them by name. But when it's to the Ephesians, there's not that personal touch. It's just kind of this general letter with these big glowing ideas. And, and so some scholars say, well, you, you see... It couldn't have been Paul, because if Paul, had, if Paul had been to Ephesus for three years, and he would put all these people's names in. Well, that's assuming he would do that. But what about if this letter is a circular letter, if it's supposed to be going to, to many churches, then Paul maybe would have written it in a more general style, right? Speaking of style, that's the second point that people make. Paul's other letters seem to be written in a real terse, argumentative style, or a, uh, not argumentative in a bad way, but just like responding to questions or responding to crises. He usually writes fairly clearly, although if you've read some of his stuff, it's not clear at all. But uh, he has more of a terse style. But in Ephesians, like for example, in the Greek letter to, to the Ephesians, verses 3 through 14 are one sentence that we just chop up so we can actually read it in English. Paul would have failed English grammar, no problem. But so, so Ephesians is, is written very differently than these, other, uh, than these other letters. But my take on that is Ephesians was written for a different purpose as well. Uh, think about those other letters I said are written ad hoc or in response to issues. Uh, but Ephesians, he's writing to say something uh, from neutral ground. He's trying to, to write a vision of what the church is. So, for example, uh, when I'm on the road or traveling, whatever, I might write. I used to write letters to Corey. Now I write emails because of these darn smartphones. But, um, you know, if, if I send her a letter like, I, I miss you, and I won't tell you all the things I say would embarrass me. But, uh, you know, it's kind of lovey-dovey stuff. But w- one time I was gone taking a class, uh, a- and our refrigerator broke. Well, that email was very different. She wanted to know, hey, what should I do about this? So it was very pointed and bullet-pointed, and I just responded right to that crisis and sent that email. Now, you could look at those two letters and say, wait a minute, Chris normally writes this way. There's no way he wrote that. How's, would, that, would that be ridiculous or what? You're saying I can't write in more than one style? Well, that's what some people are saying about Paul, that, you know, it's too different from his other letters. It couldn't have been him. And I think the problem with that thinking is that uh, it, it doesn't allow Paul, who's one of the smartest guys uh, in the ancient world, to be different, to switch up his style at all. There's also the burden of history 
No one ever questioned Paul's authorship of these letters until the late 19th or early 20th century. The early church fathers, some of who wrote within one or two generations of Paul, um, they, they accepted it whole hog that he uh, wrote that letter and it was to the Ephesians. I'll leave you with this quote from H.J. Cadbury. He says, Which is more likely that an imitator of Paul in the first century composed a writing that's 90 or 95% in accordance with Paul's style, or that Paul himself wrote a letter diverging 5 or 10% from his usual style. So from here forward, I'll tip my hand and say, I believe Paul wrote this letter from imprisonment in Rome, uh, somewhere between 60 and 62 AD. And I think he wrote it to the churches of Asia, uh, of which the Ephesian church became the prominent player and uh, therefore got the name stamp later on. I'd be happy, in fact thrilled, because <laughs> I'm a nerd, to discuss all of that later on, maybe over dinner or something like that. But from now on, let's dig into this text a little bit. This evening, we are only going to look at two verses. Uh, verses 1 and 2, how about that? And they read like this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now Paul begins his letter in a fairly standard manner. In the ancient uh, Mediterranean and Near East, people wrote letters differently than we do now. When I write a letter, let's say I'm writing a letter to Jeannie, I would say, Dear Jeannie. So I, uh, what's the first thing on there? It's who I'm writing it to. Dear Jeannie, how are you doing? I loved how you led us in worship today. Thank you very much. I appreciate all your hard work. Love in Christ, Chris. So I have who it's to, the body, and then who it's from. Pretty standard. Okay, in, in, in Paul's day, the letter writing went like this. Who's writing the letter? Right? So Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, who the letter is to, to the saints who are at Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. And then some kind of greeting, greetings to you, or grace and peace to you. And then they would do some kind of thanksgiving. Hey, I really like that you're my friend or you're my church or whatever. And then the body of the message. So, in this letter, Paul identifies himself first as Paul, but not just Paul, but Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. This is an important term for us because it means that this letter is more than just some guy writing his best ideas about what he thinks God is doing in the church. That word apostle means that Paul is authorized to speak and to write in the authority of the living God, of the risen Christ. And so when we read Ephesians, and this is an important point, Paul is writing as an apostle. That means we don't get to just read Ephesians and say, well, I like that part, but that part's really hard, so I don't want to do it. This letter is basically God's word to us and for us and over us. All right? Paul is quick to show, however, that his authority as an apostle is not because he's this great guy. His, he is an apostle by the will of God. Now, there's a sermon right there. In fact, I got to about Wednesday afternoon, and I was regretting that I didn't just want to preach on verse 1. Uh, we're going to go through two verses today. But Paul carries as much authority as any human being possibly can. He is an apostle of the living God. And yet he realizes that his authority has nothing to do with his own ability, or his own gender, or his own pedigree. He's 
only an apostle because of the will of God. Paul is this guy who in the book of Acts, you know, casts out demons. This dude is causing trouble in the city. And so Paul looks at him in the eyes and says, you're not going to see anymore for a time. I mean, Paul's a bad dude and had all this spiritual authority. He was the man. But he's also a man who found his confidence in Jesus. He was so confident in Jesus that it allowed him to be humble. You see, Paul knows where he comes from. I like sports. And sometimes when you interview like a rising sports star, they say, man, I always remember where I'm coming from. I always remember where I came from. I always remember my neighborhood. And so you, so you see a lot of athletes give back, right? That's a big kind of term in sports. I, I like to give back to my neighborhood or to my school I went to, uh, to my family. And I think that Paul is deeply connected to where he came from. Paul was once a persecutor of the church. He would seek out Christians as a Jewish rabbi. And he would have them arrested. He stood by and watched Stephen get stoned to death for being a believer in Jesus Christ. He was on his way to Damascus one day to persecute the church. And then Jesus showed up on that road. said, Paul... Not, why are you persecuting the church? He said, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? When, when Paul was persecuting the church, he was persecuting Jesus. And that Damascus Road experience, I think, stuck with Paul throughout his whole ministry. He's deeply aware of where he came from. He has no leg to stand on. He did not at all earn the right to be an apostle. But God, for some reason, showed up on that road and rescued him. Changed his life forever. Gave him that incredible ability to be full of confidence in Jesus on the one hand and extremely humble in who he really was on the other. And you know, I think uh, oftentimes the thing I struggle with and see my friends struggle with is that we're either uh, falsely arrogant on the one hand because we're insecure and so we pretend that we're more than we are. Or on the other extreme, we're, we're falsely humble. And we don't live into the fact that Christ has died for us and given us gifts and abilities to use. And so we say, oh, I'm, not, I'm not good enough to serve the Lord. I'm not good enough uh, to, to do this or that. And both of those things are really bad lies. You didn't do anything to merit your salvation. But because you've been chosen of God and you're holy and beloved, you now have spiritual authority, spiritual ability. You are the church. You are God's representatives in the world. So in a way, it's kind of like, get off your butt. Because it's not about you. But that's another sermon that's called Get Off Your Butt, It's Not About You. That's a good title. <clears throat> So this apostle by the will of God, this Paul, writes to the saints and faithful in Christ Jesus. If you've responded to the call of God through faith and baptism, Paul is talking to you. You might say, no, no, no. No, Paul's writing to the saints and faithful in Christ Jesus, not me. I'm not one of those things. Yes, you are. Let me show you how. I think we have a warped view of the word saint. 
when I say the word saint, even for me, what comes to mind is either a really old picture and a dude with a halo or somebody that is dead and then a hundred years later the Pope says, okay, you're a saint, right? That's not at all what Paul is talking about here. Remember, Paul was a Jewish rabbi before he was a leader in the Christian church. And so when he's thinking, he's not thinking Greek, he's thinking Hebrew, I think, oftentimes. And that word saint means holy ones, holy ones. So it would be like this, to the holy ones who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Well, holy ones is a very common Hebrew term. That's what God used to call Israel. Holy ones. You are my holy ones. I've chosen you to represent me to the world. Now, if you've read even a little bit of the Old Testament, how often were Israelites actually holy ones? Right? They were <laughs> exile after exile, punishment after punishment, right? There's some serious problems. There's only a few bright spots in the whole Old Testament of them really doing a great job of being holy ones. And yet, that's exactly what they are. Not because they did anything to make themselves holy ones, but because God said, you're my holy ones. And it's the same thing with us, the church. When Paul says to the saints... And faithful, he's not saying, hey, you're a saint because you're a great person or you're uh, somehow holier than thou. You're a saint because Jesus says you're a saint. He rescued you. That's part of that new identity that we're going to be living into as we read through Ephesians. You're not saints, fellow church, because of what you've done but because of what was done through Jesus. And you responded to what Jesus did for you on the cross through faith, trusting him for forgiveness and new life. And you are a saint, not on your own merit. You are a saint and you are faithful in Christ. In Christ. Over the weeks, we are going to be doing our best to unpack that term in Christ. I mean, that is the linchpin, I think, of this whole book is what it means to be in Christ. The great mystery that Paul is talking about is the summing up of all things. This is from chapter 1, verses uh, 9 and 10. The summing up of all things in Christ, things of the heavens and things on earth. In Christ, at its basic level, has to do with Jesus representing you and representing me. In the ancient world, a king would represent his people. So if you had a really good king, things went well with you. But if you read through uh, oftentimes uh, Israel's kings, well, King Saul, for example, would bring the whole nation into trouble. When King David uh, went ahead and did a census, which he wasn't supposed to do, it brought problems to the whole nation. So the king represented the people. Uh, on a positive example, think of David and Goliath. David, the future king, uh, is in the army of Israel, and they're going against the Philistines. And so instead of having the whole army fight each other, they say, okay, your champion will go against our champion, and whichever champion wins will consider that whole side to have won. Okay, so if the Philistines win, Israel will become your slaves. And if Israel wins, then the Philistines will become our slaves. And so you got David and Goliath. David goes out kicks booty, and wins for his whole people. So the, the king would represent the people. So when Jesus became a man, he represented all Israel. 
And where Israel failed, Jesus resisted temptation and was perfectly obedient to the Father. He died, defeated death, and rose again from the dead. So what happens to the king happens to the people. So to be in Christ means that those who live in Jesus, that those who live as though Jesus were king, will share in the new life that Jesus also experiences. How is that possible? How is it that we can gain a reward that we didn't earn? That's so not American. That's so not human. Praise the Lord, right? I mean, that's good news. Check this out. Remember how I told you about ancient letter writing? It went sender to the recipient, right? It was Paul, Apostle of Jesus Christ, to the saints who were at Ephesus. And then after that, there's supposed to be a greeting. And in the ancient world, whether secular or religious, it would be greetings. And Ian has that word. Ian's going to put greetings up there. And that's the Greek word, kerin, greetings. That's how everyone would write letters. But Paul put a theological twist on his letter. So when Paul writes his letter, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus, he doesn't say greetings. He says grace to you. Now check out this next slide. Grace is so similar to caring. It's charis. And so he, he slips that word in there where you'd normally read greetings. It would stand out to you for two reasons. First of all, it'd be like, oh, this is odd. It doesn't say greetings. But it's also a play on words. It's very similar in spelling and everything. So he packs it in there with a theological word. Grace to you and peace. Being in Christ is nothing short of God's gift of grace through Jesus. Thanks, Ian. And this peace that the Greek word, it it translates this Hebrew word shalom, which shalom means much more than just lack of conflict. I mean, sometimes that's what we've reduced peace to in our world. I, peace means lack of conflict. That my kids are finally asleep and I can just uh, rest, right? Or there's no wars, so that must mean everyone's at peace. No. Shalom, it's richly sublime. It is a robustly full word. Shalom, in one word, sums up everything that is the good life. In fact, when Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God, he's talking about the kingdom of shalom. Shalom is wholeness or well-being. But not just your wholeness or my wholeness, but communal wholeness and well-being. In Jewish and early Christian thought, you could not possibly think of shalom in terms of just your person. I wouldn't have shalom if I knew that Jim wasn't living in shalom or that Matt wasn't living in shalom. It just isn't possible because they thought in terms of the group or the whole. So in Jesus' mind, and the minds of his hearers, it would be incompatible to think that one could be experiencing shalom while his brother or sister is not. Shalom is that kind of wholeness that includes inner personal peace and outer peace with one another and with God. Scott McKnight writes, You're experiencing shalom when you've got what you need and you need what you've got. When you love those you're with and are with the ones you love. And what Paul is saying by using these words grace and peace by starting his letter is that the Father who sent Jesus to the cross to offer us shalom through grace 
is also the one who sent His Spirit, who is building us up in Christ. And that, my friends, is what the church is. A community being built up in Christ through grace and peace. So, if you, by the grace and peace of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, find yourself in Christ this evening, rejoice. Live into that identity. And if you are here this evening and you are hearing the calling of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, the calling to receive His grace and peace and lordship over you, the call to be baptized, you can pray with me now. Jesus, if the first... If the first two verses of this letter are already blowing our minds, help us. (laughs) Help us to receive this good news. To be found in Christ. To receive your acceptance. To receive your invitation into your family. It is so hard to believe, Lord, that you've called us, even us, to be your new community in the world. To reflect your goodness and mercy, your truth and holiness. We are so used to to measuring our performance, Lord, and all we can see most of the time is how we're failing and our friends are failing and how this church is failing and our church is failing. And yet this letter that you've given to us through your, your servant Paul shows us a completely different thing that you're seeing. A people rescued by grace rescued through your death, your servanthood, having nothing to do with our abilities. Lord, we confess how hard it is to accept grace. It is hard. We want to earn. We don't want to be in debt. And I thank you that you don't hold that over our head, but you continually, gently, and yet determinedly Draw us in to Christ. I pray for each one of us this evening, Lord. You know the blocks in our lives. You know, you know the hurdles to belief and to trusting you. Oh, Lord, be God over this place. Be God in our hearts. Help us to receive you afresh. To remember our baptism, if that has occurred in our life, our death with you and our resurrection in new life. And for those who are considering that decision, Lord, have mercy and reveal yourself, Lord. Thank you that it's you, that it's you who are king and God over us. You are so good. Amen.